Hello everybody. Labor Know Your Rights is brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. We are now a proud member of Labor Radio Network. Looking for a radio program or podcasts on the labor movement? This is the network to find it. Simply go to www.laborradionetwork.org. On December 30th, 1936, the auto workers at the Fisher 1 and Fisher 2 plants sat down. The strike eventually spread throughout the General Motors empire, affecting approximately 140,006 of the corporation's auto employees. We employees are more than 50% of its plants, but the center of the conflict from the end of December was Flint. There, the Fisher body plants produced bodies and parts on which three-quarters of General Motors automotive production depended. The most significant of the union's official demands, which were submitted to GM on January 4, 1937, was the request that the UAW be recognized as the exclusive bargaining agency for all GM employees. The Women's Auxiliary was formed by about 50 women after a street dance on New Year's Eve in front of the, the worker held Fisher Plant No. 2. The Auxiliary supported the striking men. They fed the strikers daily, set up a first aid station where they nursed casualties, distributed literature, ran around the clock picket lines, and took charge of publicity. The women also ran a daycare center for the children of striking mothers, established a welfare committee and a speaker's bureau, and visited wives who opposed the sit-down to try to convince them to support their husbands. The responsibility for feeding several thousand workers, both inside and outside the plants, was enormous. The union kitchen was headed by Dorothy Krause, wife of Henry Krause, the union's editor. One day's food supply included 500 pounds of meat, 100 pounds of potatoes, 300 loaves of bread, 100 pounds of coffee, 200 pounds of sugar, 30 gallons of milk, and four cases of evaporated milk. 200 people, mostly women, prepared this food. On the afternoon of January 11th, as workers were handing food in through the main gate of Fisher II, company guards suddenly appeared and overpowered them. The workers quickly ran up a ladder to hoist the food to the second floor, but the guards hauled it down. At that moment, in 16-degree weather, the company turned off the heat. When other workers alerted to this new development, moved to battle the company guards, the Flint police advanced on the auto workers, opening fire on them with tear gas bombs. News of this action brought more workers to the scene. Women pickets deposited their children at the Union Hall and raced to the plant. In the midst of the police attacks, Janora Johnson, the wife of a union man who was inside the plant, took the microphone of the union soundtrack and cried out to the police, cowards, cowards, 
shooting unarmed and defenseless men. Then to the women in the crowd she cried, Women of Flint, this is your fight. Join the picket line and defend your jobs, your husband's jobs and your children's homes. The police continued firing until they were out of tear gas. By morning, the Battle of Bull Run, in which the strikers and their supporters routed the Flint police, was over. The Bulls, the police, ran. 8,000 workers massed in front of Fisher II to celebrate the victory, while thousands signed up in the UAW. On January 21, 1937, the New York Times announced the formation of a new automotive strike organization. The Women's Emergency Brigade, composed of women who have husbands, sons, or brothers in the General Motors strike, the Battle Bull Run, Janora Johnson organized the Women's Emergency Brigade as a vanguard detachment of the Women's Auxiliary. The organization's purpose, Johnson told reporters, was to be on hand in any emergency and to stand by our husbands, brothers, and sons. We will form a picket line around the men, and if the police want to fire, then they'll have to fire into us. Starting with 50 women, the Flint Brigade soon grew to 350 and became the model for similar emergency brigades in other auto cities. The emergency brigades were set up with military precision. Each had a general and five captains, and each captain had 10 lieutenants. This made it possible to call together thousands of Union women at a moment's notice. On almost equally short notice, the women's emergency brigades could mobilize thousands of women to weak or embattled points. If we go into battle, we will be armed, Janora Johnson was asked. Yes, she replied, with rolling pins, brooms, mops, and anything we can get. The members of the brigade also began carrying a long two-by-fours whittled down at one end for better use as weapons. The women were doing this because they have concluded it must be done if they and their children are to have a decent life. Boris described the Flint Brigade in action. Down the hill presently, a procession preceded by an American flag, the women's bright red cap showed dramatically in the dark crowd. They were singing, Hold the Fort. To all the crowd, there was something moving about seeing the women return to the picket line after having been gassed. The crowd took up the song. The line of bright-capped women spreading itself in front of the high gate. Some of the men who had jumped over the gate went back. At half-past three in the morning, a dozen women of the emergency brigade were on duty in the first aid room in Pingali Hall. The brigade was ready for action when the sit-downers seized several other General Motors plants late in January. Creating a disturbance, they lured the police to Chevrolet Plant No. 9 at Flint so that the mail strikers could seize Plant No. 4, the key to the Motor Assembly Division. When Plant 9 was tear-gassed, the emergency brigade broke windows to the plant so that the strikers could breathe. Later setting up a line in front of Chevrolet 4, the brigade dared the police to attack. For 44 days, from December 30, 1936 to February 11, 1937, the GM workers and their womenfolk fought the giant corporation in a great sit-down struggle. At 2.25 a.m. on February 11, Michigan Governor Frank Murphy announced that a P-51 
peace terms had been arranged. The agreement recognized the UAW as the collective bargaining agency for its members, and the company agreed not to interfere with the right of its employees to belong to that union. Women from different towns got up and talked about the many activities in which they were engaged, what they did for their children, of their classes formed, how their committees worked, how they made little plays about the episode of the strike. The hall was packed with women, the men standing in a fringe at the back. The chairwoman of the meeting was in command. All the women were finding in themselves new powers and new strengths, and they had found each other. Janora Johnson, founder of the brigades, explained that in helping their husbands in the strike and improve working conditions in the plants, the wives were helping themselves and their children. The men were so driven by the speed up in the factory that he came home unable to be a decent companion to either his wife or his children, and some wives had to take an awful lot of bad treatment from their husbands. Women of the Auxiliary Lodges, Chicago, picketed their striking husbands in North Chicago and were gassed and beaten. At the Memorial Day Massacre in Chicago, Republic Steel Plant, women were at the head of the mass picket line when the police first fired into the unarmed demonstrators and then beat the wounded and others with their clubs. Four workers were killed, over 80 wounded. A St. Louis Post-Dispatch reporter described the Paramount film of the massacre, which was never released for public showing. He wrote of how women, as well as men, were attacked by the club swinging police. He described a girl not more than five feet tall who can hardly weigh more than a hundred pounds. She is seen going down under a quick blow from a policeman's club delivered from behind. She gets up and staggers around. A few minutes later, she is shown being shoved into a patrol wagon as blood cascades down her face and spreads over her clothing. A few weeks later, January 19th was proclaimed Women's Day by the striking steel workers in Youngstown, Ohio. In front of the gates of Republic Steel, tear gas and shots were fired at female pickets, some of whom were accompanied by their children. Rushing from a union meeting, men joined the demonstrators, and a general battle with the deputies followed. Two strikers were killed and 42, several of them women, were injured. The following day, labor reporter Mary Heaton Worse was herself wounded by gunshot. Having proved themselves an effective weapon, the sit-down strikes rolled like a wave across the country. By March 1932, the CIO felt it necessary to advise newspapers that sit-down should be spelled with a hyphen. A leading CIO official defined a sit-down as a cessation of work with the men remaining at work. The conscious or unconscious neglect of women's sit-down strikers is surprising since in the two weeks after the GM victory in Flint, they were involved in the 87 sit-downs in Detroit. Sit-down strikers, chiefly involving women and young girls, are in progress in seven auto plants and other manufacturing plants here, wrote a reporter from Detroit in mid February 1937. Nearly 3,000 workers are the girls at Farm Crest Bakeries slept on pie and cake rests until they received the cots that had been used by the Flint sit-down strikers. The great transformation of Detroit, one of the country's strongest open shop centers to a union town, is underway, observed a reporter. 
symptomatic of what was called the strike of strikes, the sit-down of F.W. Woolworth girls in two five-and-dime stores. Even though Detroit had become somewhat used to sit-down strikes, this event was flashed in blaring headlines. Girls sit down in Loop 10 Cent Store. 200 girls have sat down at the height of this shopping rush on Saturday afternoon. Most of them were in their teens, and their young voices created a sensation as they contrasted in song the wealth of Barbara Hunton, the millionaire Woolworth heiress, and their own conditions. Barbara Hunton has the dough, parlez-vous. Where she gets it, sure we know, parlez-vous. We slave at Woolworths, five and dime. Pay we get is sure a crime. Hinky dinky, parlez-vous, and Barbara Hunton eats good mutton. The Woolworth workers, they get nothing. They were striking for a 48-hour week, a dollar for an hour wage increase over their pay, which was as low as $10.44 a week, and the right to collective bargaining. On the seventh day of the sit-down strike, they scored a clear victory, a five-cent-an-hour increase in wages, union recognition, annual vacations with pay, no charge for laundering uniforms, and payment for half the time they had been on strike. The agreement covered 40 Woolworth stores in Detroit and was the first in history that such an action has affected the great five-and-dime chain. Other sit-downs followed. 47 Detroit sit-downs by strikers read one headline in Detroit papers on March 7, 1937. A new high in action of women on the labor front read another. In New York City, sit-downs in Woolworths, Grands, and H.I. Greens, and 100 stores dominated the news for 10 days in March 1937. Blankets, cots, guitars, and food were passed to the striking women. You're making history, Clarissa Michelson, general organizer of Local 1250. H.L. Green Company was the first to settle after the sit-down had lasted 13 days. Signing a contract that provided for a 10% wage increase for workers receiving less than $20 weekly, 5% for workers making more than $20, union recognition for all union members, one week's vacation pay for workers employed a full year, and two weeks for those employed for two years, minimum wage of $14.50 for apprentices and $15.60 for regular, and an eight-hour day. The contract covered all 13 green stores in the city. When 250 women at the Penn State Tobacco Company in Philadelphia sat down, the company threatened to move the shop and machinery. Thereupon, a group of women blocked the move by laying down on the doorway in front of a truck that had come to move the machines. After a four-week strike, the strikers won preferential union shop sanitary conditions a 5% wage increase, and an agreement for future negotiations to settle other grievances. In American industries at large during 1937, there were 477 sit-down strikes affecting over 300,000 workers. Many of them were women who adopted this technique in hospitals, drug companies, restaurants, and hotels, in addition to the industries already discussed. In Congress, the conservatives attempted to condemn the sit-down as illegal, but they were only able to secure the passage of a concurrent resolution condemning both the sit-down and unfair practices by employers. 
Resolutions did not carry the force of law, and it was not until 1939 that the sit-down was finally declared illegal by the Supreme Court. One of the last of the sit-down strikes by the 1,800 members of the Packing House Workers Organization Committee, CIO, who closed the Kansas City Armor Packing Plant in mid-September 1938 when the company refused to pay for the time lost during a grievance committee meeting. Women auxiliary members kept the strike going by passing buckets of coffee and sandwiches over the fence to the 1,200 men and 600 women sitting down. After a few days, the company gave in. The biggest strike in the summer of 1936 was the UE strike at the Radio Corporations of America plant in Camden, New Jersey. On June 23rd, after David Sarnoff, RCA president, had refused to negotiate with a committee of UE workers, 6,000 employees at the plant, many of them women went on strike for union recognition, wage increases to bring wages up to those in other Philadelphia area radioelectrical plants, and the seven-hour day. Within a few days, the number of strikers had grown to 9,000, 60% of them women. The mass picket lines were attacked by Camden police, state troopers, and straight-breaking thugs. It was estimated that RCA spent close to a quarter of a million dollars fighting the strike, and women were not spared in the brutal attacks on the strikers. One account in the press read, The police broke my arm on the picket line this morning, but I still have another arm and two legs. I'm going to be back on the picket line this afternoon. A young girl, an RCA striker, was speaking. She had just came back from the hospital, her tightly bandaged arm in a sling. The girl's militancy is not exceptional. Another woman striker, who also had her arm in a sling, said, One of the scabs had a piece of lead pipe wrapped in newspaper. He was aimed for my head, and I reached up to protect myself. It came down on my wrist instead and broke the bone and tore a couple of ligaments. I've got to get injections for it to make the blood to clot. I'm 25 years old, been married eight years, and have my husband and my little girl to support. Some of us have eight kids to support on $13 a week. We've got 9000 on the picket line and lots of support from other unions in town. Sure, we're going to win. On July 21, 1936, Cernoff agreed to a National Labor Relations Board election and provided that the company would recognize the union if it received a majority vote as the sole collective bargaining agency for the workers. Strikers would be reemployed without discrimination and RCA would pay as high wages under as favorable hours and working conditions as prevail in Camden, Philadelphia. Manufacturing establishments engaged in similar classes of work. Even though the battle was not over, the Union had won the important victory. Although the UE won the election and was certified as a sole agent on November 9, 1936, it was not until three years later that the UE won clear collective bargaining rights at RCA. In September 1936, WE joined the CIO, the first organization to affiliate outside of the original AFL unions that had formed it. The UE's growth was spectacular from 33,000 members in December 1936 to approximately 120,000 
by August 31, 1937. About 40% of these workers were women. The first woman to hold office in a UE local was Peg Theron, recording secretary of Local 601 in East Pittsburgh. She was elected for the first time on January 5, 1935, and was re-elected each year until 1940. Local 601's constitution ratified in November 1936 contained a clause inserted at the insistence of its women members. Article 11, Section 5 read, The term he is in this constitution and bylaws shall mean any member of the local. Article 1, Section 1 provided for a dues differential with men paying $1 monthly dues and women 40 cents. This was intended to lessen the burden on women until their wages were raised. Women constitute about one-third of the 11,000 workers at Westinghouse East Pittsburgh plant. The motor division was made up predominantly of women. The switchgear and generator divisions had about 50% women, and the factory service department had between 30 and 40% women. From late 1936 through the spring of 1937, Local 601 conducted an all-out organizing drive in which women played a major role. But the local did not assign women just to organize women. Peg Darren recalled, They never said, Well, here, you go and organize women. No, I don't think it was categorized that way. Rather, here's a shop. You go out and you do the best to win the hearts and minds of the people in that shop. However, Darren believed that women suffered special oppression in the plant and that a special appeal to them was necessary. By April 1937, Local 601 had assigned up 7,200 out of the 11,000 workers and was recognized by the National Labor Relations Board as the sole bargaining agent for the East Pittsburgh plant. By 1940, they had 17,000 members. Dozens of women were elected shop stewards. The local constitution provided for the formation of a women's committee. The women's committee rapidly into the women's conference. Please share this podcast with your family and friends. If you like our podcasts, please rate us on iTunes. It helps others find us. If you would like to contact us, we have various ways to do so in our show notes, along with contact information for the National League of Justice and Security Professionals. Thank you for listening.